0: Hello and welcome to Almost 30. Welcome to Almost 30 podcast. If you're new here, we're so glad to have you. If you're an old friend, welcome back. Welcome back. I'm Lindsay and this is Krista. And if you are new here, just to let you know, Almost 30 began when we were going through that transition between your 20s and your 30s. No, we didn't think about naming this podcast and (laughs) whether it would last, but it's really become kind of a metaphor for any transition. So we're here to support. We're here to be really honest, open, have conversations around spirituality, around health and wellness, and so much more. And uh, it's been fun. Yeah,
1: it's been a blast. (laughs) Our community is incredible. They are so super supportive, open, kind, and we do courses and programs and all those things. So welcome to the podcast today. It's a very special day.
0: Very special day. (laughs) The other, when we recorded
1: (laughs) with Mr. Jay Shetty, who I'm sure you guys are all so excited to hear from, it was one of the best
0: moments of our podcasting career. Truly. For sure. What if we called him Mr. Jay Shetty when you walked in, (laughs) (laughs) literally? Hello, Mr. Jay Shetty. Well, <laughs> sorry, podcast. we're nervous. Yeah, we're like we call Mister <laughs>
1: the whole podcast, and we also, you guys, it's <laughs> selfishly one of the most important because of how kind he was at the end, saying those saying basically that one of our interviews, our interviews was one of the best he's done.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was really really kind. What I loved, and you know what I think, what I think helped so much his intention at the top of the interview, even before we hopped on, he's like, I just want to have a conversation that I've never had before. And I loved that. That really stuck with me. Like, I think it can become easy if you're on a book tour of sorts like this to just regurgitate the same things. And obviously he knows his book backwards and forwards. And yeah, it was just really, really special. And man, he is just so kind. Like, yes. you know, he is exactly what you feel from him online and more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we got to hang out before and after our team was so excited. So excited. They kept
1: running into Philip Waters. It was like, (laughs) it was incredible. So (laughs) we had the best time. And you guys, this interview is so powerful. So we're excited to share all of the wisdom and information within it. And definitely send this to friends, send this to family, send this to anyone that could you know, benefit or learn from all of these beautiful things that we have in this
0: conversation. Yeah, and his new book, Think Like a Monk is out today. So you can head to Jay's website, jayshetty.me to grab his book. And also he has an incredible podcast called On Purpose. But yeah, I actually, when I started to learn more about Jay, I didn't realize that he had spent time as a monk. And then as I kind of watched more of his content. And I was like, oh wow. Mm-hmm. Like it's just so influenced by that time in his life without it being like, hey, you should become a monk. Yes. It's like, no, there are just these pillars of of that life that we can all, you know, bring into our everyday for that peace and Mm groundedness and just connection to self and source.
1: Yeah. It's the work he does is so important and his team is incredible. And in our conversation, which again is one of his favorites that he's done. (laughs) Might I I just remind you, it's a proud moment for us. Um, (laughs) We talked about ego. I loved the conversation about ego. Ego has been something that's been so prevalent uh, for me this year, just going through a really challenging time, working with my true essence ego and then my false ego at the same time. We talked about creativity and flow. It was fast to get a little behind the scenes um, look at the way that his team runs and how they create content and the structure that he uses to keep himself inspired. We also talked about his relationship with Source. As you guys know, he's a spiritual man, but it was really beautiful just to hear how he describes his relationship with God, Source, Universe in such a easy to access and
0: universal way. Yeah. I also loved when we talked about wonder and just... Kind of, you know, taking a moment in your day, whether it's on a walk or, you know, just a few minutes wherever you are to notice things around you that you might not have seen before. Mm -hmm. So, whether you like see a flower on a walk, or he describes like looking at a raisin. He Mm -hmm. does that with a lot of his workshops. He'll have people look at a raisin. And you just see things about these objects and things that are. So unique and what you haven't seen before, and it actually just translates to everything you do, whether it's in relationships. Noticing me noticing something about Krista mm-hmm. that I've never noticed before, and just being an absolute wonder. Where? I tell you,
1: what if we, what if we started raisins at our next retreat? <laughs> <laughs> People, we'd we'll be like here. You're Please. bringing the sun kiss. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> people be like, um, this doesn't make sense. Uh, we also talked about finding your purpose. One of the most important things that we talk about within our podcast, in your community, something we're all searching for, finding our purpose, um, his relationship evolution with his beautiful wife who is going to come on the show soon. Can't wait. Um, we talked about just what the key to their happiness is, how they let themselves grow, how their relationship works. And then we talked about the key to life. One of the most important keys key keys Keys to life, big hint, it's service. But we explained really why that's so important to everything that we do.
0: Everything. So again, thank you for joining us. If you're new, we would love if you would share this and or subscribe. So Mm -hmm. our podcast is in your inbox every Tuesday and thursday and check out almost 30.com we have a lot of resources for you you know whatever transition you're going through our hope is that the content can support you in courses and workshops we have a really special digital workshop series that we've been working on and you know we have workshops on everything from like aliens to human design to intuition to anxiety and so i really believe that these uh very valuable, open, honest workshops will help you and support you in whatever you are going through. So almost30.com. It's also in the shop, almost30.com as well, along with our merch. You can also rep Almost 30 if it, uh, if it fits in your closet.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's super soft, so it's perfect for quarantine time. Okay. Let's get into this interview with the amazing Jay Shetty, author of Think Like a Monk people see you as such like a leader in so many ways and but also you know i I don't know if people see as much the business side of like you having a team of like 20 something people and just balancing that like do you feel like that's a different side of your persona or how do you integrate that into the public side of you that's you know the monk the leader the healer
2: if i had it my way i would love if i could just be creative like if i could truly have it my way I would choose to just be an artist and be creative and just be in that space all day. And I think there was a time in my life where I just realized that that would mean that my creativity would potentially never reach anyone. Mm. And that's Mm. where I became focused on wanting to learn how all the other parts fit. Because I was like, you can either choose to be Picasso and be an artist and die and no one ever sees your work when you're alive. Or you can choose to switch And I'm just the first person that came to my mind was like Steve Jobs, who was able to marry the art and the business to create something that had a massive impact in the world. And so for me, I was so keen on impact and positive impact and having made trying to make a difference that I felt like if I didn't learn building a team and business and leadership and all those aspects, which I'm still learning, by the way, and we can talk about that. But if I didn't do that, then I wouldn't have been satisfied. And I think that's a choice every artist has to make, that you either choose to be an artist and a creative forever, or you choose to add business focus, skills, leadership to that, to advance it yourself. And almost like stop waiting for someone to come and find your art and make it successful. Because I feel like there was a big part of me was like, oh, one day some manager's going to come along or an agent's going to come along and spot my talent. And they're going to know how to catapult this to make a difference. And it's like, well, no, that doesn't really quite happen. You have to do it yourself. So, I love that. There's yeah. almost
0: like a, a weird grieving process that happens as you transition or marry the two, like, you know, knowing yourself as a creative, but then having to integrate kind of the business side and that self-promotion and really like not waiting for that opportunity. There is a grieving process as that creator. What was that like for you?
2: That's such a good question. And it's so true. Like literally... I think I probably go through that on a monthly basis. Yeah. Like it's, it's regular. It's not like, oh, you're done. Now I'm out of that process. <laughs> and so I'm constantly saying to my team, I just want to be more creative. I just want to be more Dude, creative. Totally. And so I'm always, I've tried to arrange my schedule now in a way where I have two full creative days a week. So two days a week. I don't want to take any meetings. I don't want to have any conversations. I just want to be able to sit with a pen and a piece of paper and be able to write or sketch or brainstorm or create or whatever it may be. And hey, I fail at that. I don't always manage to get my two days a week, but it's just the reminder of the intention that I don't want to get so far away from what I truly love because we all started this because we wanted to do what we love.
1: Totally. And
2: so for me, I, I think that grieving process is a monthly feeling, a weekly feeling. And I think it's a positive thing because it's always pulling me back. But at the same time, I have to be honest and say that I'm really glad that I have tried to push the other way Mm. because otherwise I wouldn't feel satisfied either. So if I was just creating one piece of content a year, I also don't think I would learn how to really support my audience or to really connect with them or to really help them. And so I, I actually love the figuring out and the navigation of the balance. The most, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah, I like the
1: push pull of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we, you know, you were more creative before than me. I was in the corporate world before this, so I was like, I didn't really know that there could be a balance. I didn't really even know that you could be creative at all. And so figuring out how to express creativity now through the business, even in like business ways, has been such a joy. But you said something earlier I wanted I want to talk about especially as it relates to 2020 and that's leadership. You know, you were talking about you mentioned something about being a leader, like especially during these times where navigating it feels like unprecedented. What have you learned about leadership and how you can reach your audience?
2: So tough times are always the time when I think we get a chance to find our better and deeper selves. Like you get an opportunity to really push for that because all of a sudden, everything you already knew isn't in demand anymore. And so I've always found that in times of uncertainty, the only certainty I find is in service because when there's uncertainty, that means there's the best opportunity to serve Mm. because if more people are lost confused troubled then therefore there is more to do and i think that's what i see as leadership is wanting to be of service to others and i think there's a beautiful quote by gandhi where he said you you find yourself when you lose yourself in the service of others mm-hmm. and and to me that's what leadership is is that you lose yourself in trying to figure out how to help people in the best way you can And I think for me during this time, especially in 2020, I was looking at around what all the other people were doing and I was like, well, I can't sing like John Legend or play the piano. Uh, I can't do that, but I, I can teach meditation or I can teach mindfulness. And so for me, my form of wanting to serve was, well, why don't I offer people their 20, 30 minutes a day at the beginning of the lockdown where they can find their peace, they can find their calm, they can kind of get their stillness and declutter. And then hopefully they'll have the clarity to take whatever steps they're going to have to take because I can't solve all their problems, but I can help them have the clarity that they'll know what to do next. Mm. And so that's why we started these, we did 20 days of meditation. And my only intention was, I just want people to have one part of their day, which isn't bombarded by the news, isn't bombarded by the worry, isn't them on a chat thread that's just full of mm-hmm. uh, full of worry and anxiety
1: or being on a zoom call or being on a zoom call
2: <laughs> yes. exactly or whatever maybe this is their one time that they're going to find stillness and calmness for themselves we did 20 days and people loved it so much that we did 40 days and we had 20 million people tune in over 40 days casual and and the best thing about it was that i would bring on I would bring on people at the end of them towards the end. So I, I wish I did this at the start, but I started to realize I really wanted to do it towards the end. So probably for the last 10 days, I would just go live with other people at the end just to ask them about their experience. And I'd say 90% of the people that were there were like, Jay, I've never meditated before. And this is my first time. And I was thinking, ah, oh, that's, you know, that's what service and leadership is, is you're giving people new opportunities and, and allowing people to have new experiences. So to me, leadership is not about being at the front or guiding everyone or saying the best thing. It's just finding your way to serve.
0: Yeah, I found, yeah, that simple question of like, how can I serve? Whether it's a prayer Mm -hmm. or just like kind of reflecting and journaling about it has been so important when I feel my ego getting in the way, you know, whether it's like, well, why didn't more people tune into that? Or did people (laughs) even like that? or You know what I mean? And it's just such a a really powerful antidote antidote. Um, but on the the meditation piece with your community I'm curious like especially during this time where there's so much unknown and you know chaos what did you feel or what did you observe as like the power of a collective pause, a collective breath, a collective like just embodiment of peace for those, you know, 15 20 minutes?
2: Yeah, I think for a lot of people, it was almost like a forced pause. So there's a study that I I love sharing because I think it creates such a visual in our minds to really get clarity. So there was a study that they did where men and women were asked to be alone with their thoughts for 15 minutes. And if they didn't want to, they could give themselves an electric shock. 30% of women chose an electric shock and 60% of men chose an electric shock because they didn't want to be alone with their thoughts. And so I feel like when lockdown started, it was like this spotlight on being alone with your thoughts and it was almost like you didn't have that numbing button or that refresh button or that reset button and the only way of resetting and refreshing was to try and open yourself up to that conversation internally and that's what the meditation was doing was I think encouraging people to realize that being alone or being in this uncertain situation doesn't mean that it's all negative now and your life is over. And, and I think we've built up certain thought processes from our past where we look at certain things in a negative way. So for example, loneliness and being alone has always been seen as a bad thing. Yeah. So when you were the kid at school that didn't have a lot of friends, you were considered the loner, right? Or if you had a birthday party and only five people showed up, then you were unpopular. Or if you're the single person, age 30, it's like, oh, that's a bad, you know, there's so much stuff in society that constantly makes us think being alone is bad. Mm. And from my experiences, and especially from my monk experiences, I realized that actually there's a whole nother word for loneliness that we never talk about, and it's called solitude. And, And it's not even used in our language or vocabulary on a daily basis. And more recently, Paul Tillich writes about it, and he talks about the difference between loneliness being a weakness and solitude being a strength and so for me i think it was the first time where people started to realize that they had the opportunity to discover their strength and hey being alone is not fun at all and but there is a part of it that when you find yourself in that solitude you're now better at connecting with people you know better at attracting the right people into your life you're better at communicating and connecting with them too does yeah. that make sense? Yes. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, it very much does. Yeah, there's um I feel like maybe this happened in quarantine too. And I did um a silent retreat and it was like there's the moment where you're kind of weaning off. You're like you know, you're addicted to everything and then you kind of have that really big fear moment and then you get used to it and then you end up loving it. When you became a monk, did you like the first weeks and the first days, was that the hardest because you were kind of detoxing from normal life?
2: Good question. So, the first time I went to live with the monks was when I was taking my breaks during university. So that's the first time I would take two to four week stints to live with them. That was hard because that was when I was going through the biggest transition in my life. Because I would literally go from you said you were in the corporate world. I was literally going from internships at corporate companies in London to then living as a monk. So I would go from my summer vacations being bars, steak <laughs> wearing suits to sleeping on the floor, waking up at 4am and meditating for eight hours a day. And so that was like my first like (laughs) AB test of the extremes of both life. And that's where it was really tough because when I first went there, they were like, so you can't listen to, I couldn't take my iPod. And so they're like, you can't listen to any music from outside. I was like, how can I go a week without listening to music? That it
1: like, like a shuffle. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, it was probably like well, you had like no choice but yeah. to listen to your like.
2: <laughs> I have no choice whatsoever. They were like, "There's, there's no. You can't bring your Game Boy. You can't bring whatever it is. Like there's all this stuff that you don't want to have there if you're really coming for serious." And I'm like, "Wow, this is hard already." But the crazy thing was that for when I got there and I started practicing, I would forget about even needing it. And so for me, it was yes, it was hard in the beginning. It was hard. Going, oh, you have to sleep on the floor. And guess what? You don't even have a space on the floor with your name on it. You just sleep on a different space every day, whichever space is available. And so I don't have a bedroom. I don't have a bed. I sleep on the floor and I don't even have a space on the floor. Mm. And so, like, all of that in the beginning. Oh, and we have to take cold showers. Oh, wow, never done that before. Like, you know, so there's just so much newness, but it's almost like, That forced immersion is sometimes what helps you discover the greatest things about yourself. And it's almost like if you're never that challenged. And I think that, and again, I I don't wish challenges upon anyone, but sometimes when we're put into these really difficult situations, we discover strengths in ourselves that we never knew we had.
0: What is the, the point? Of the cold showers, the sleeping on the floor, like what about being a monk and like kind of the purpose of that lifestyle is that?
2: Yeah, sure. <laughs> the so so the, the sleeping on the floor and everything is is to remove attachment and mm-hmm. create detachment. So it is so freeing to not think of something as yours. Like it's incredible. Wow. Because it just relieves you wow. of all of the like boundaries and pressures of it. And so for example, when you go, okay, this is my bed. This is where I sleep. This is what I do. I'm not saying people shouldn't have a bedroom now. I have a bedroom now too. And I sleep in the same, I sleep in the same bed. I'm not saying you should sleep, be a mom. Yeah, but let's, let's, uh, yeah let's, let's, let's rewind over here. Like, yeah. I sleep in the same bed every day right now. I sleep on the same side every day too. Uh, but, so I'm not recommending that. But what you're really doing is you're rewiring your brain and your mind to be okay with flexibility. Yeah. That's what you're actually doing. It's almost like when you turn up and you drive to work and someone's taking your parking spot, it's like, "Oh, someone took my parking spot today, yes. right? So you're just creating another opportunity to be dissatisfied, or you get to the uh, vending machine at at you know your your favorite uh favorite workplace or store or whatever, and it's like the sweets that you order mm-hmm. the candy you order is now out of order or not available. Like we create so many artificial points of pain for ourselves because we expect something to be the way it is every single day, and so it's basically just removing that. And it's not so much about sleeping on the floor, it's about removing that expectation from your mind. So now you become much more flexible. And you become less reactive. Totally. Yeah. yeah, it's
0: like very more in like the observer. Because if I'm, if I'm expecting something and then it doesn't go that way, I'm. it's automatically a reaction. Yeah. So was just being more of an observer. And it puts you in presence
1: because like if you are, you know, you're driving to work, you get the same spot, you get the same suite. So you sit at the same spot and then like yeah. someone's in your spot. You're like, you're awake now. You're like, what the fuck? Because <laughs> <laughs> you're like used to your path. You're like, I always sit there, you know. I see that happen so much when you get older.
0: You're yes. less flexible. <laughs> yes. You know, like, yes. as yes. I'm
1: getting older, as everyone gets older, you become less flexible. like
0: parents' vacations. Honestly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. They're like, that's my favorite whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. No, no, you're mm-hmm. spot on that. It's, it's, it's disrupting the autopilot default life. And as much as there is great growth in structure… The autopilot default life of I take the same route to work every day stops you from presence. It stops you from discovery. It stops you from revelation. And that's really what life is made up of. Like, those are the most special things in life. And so we're limiting ourselves from that. Having, we're Mm -hmm. almost trying, we're almost trying so hard to have the same experience. Totally. So even on dating, if you look at the truth, yeah, if you look at the life of dating, it's like, let's recreate our first date. Well, things are not how they used to be five years ago. Why, not? Why do they need to be how they used to be five years ago? So by always wanting to relive the old experience, you block yourself from creating a new one. And so you constantly live in nostalgia and think that the past is more beautiful because you're not letting yourself create a new memory.
1: Yeah. Or you're living in the future and you're anxious.
2: That too. You know, it's, it's just
1: kind of the, the time travel of it all. You said something too about you know when you were a monk that was interesting, and it's about like the delayed gratification part of it. It's not gratification, but I've had an experience like that too, where I was back I was backpacking Patagonia for a month, and we had to like pack everything. We had no service, all these all these things, and I remember them saying like it's not fun now, but when you're done, you'll think you had a really good time. And it's like mm-hmm. that same concept where during it, I'm like, mm. I was miserable. I'm like, this is wet. I have to set, pitch a tent. But afterwards, I'm like, that was an amazing experience. <laughs> you know, it's very weird how your mind does that because it was like so profoundly transformational for you. You probably look back, but when you're sleeping on the floor at night, did you were you ever like, this is not it?
2: Yeah, there was there's a really good <laughs> example of that. And I love what you just said, because that's a really perfect example of the same experience that we've had in non-monk and monk life. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, this, I remember, I remember one really vividly. I was in South India. Uh, I woke up late and waking up late as a monk is like, it's, it's like the walk of shame. Like that is the walk of shame <laughs> in monk life. Like, you know, everyone's already dressed and showered and everything. You woke up late. So I wake up late and I find out that the showers are like down the road from where we're staying. Like they're not where we are. And I walk out and it's raining. And when it rains in India, it, like it pours. Mm. And, so, and I'm in my little sandals walking down in the mud. And I get to the showers. And then the showers are open air showers because it doesn't rain often. So the rain is the shower. <laughs> and I'm going, what am I doing here? Like what is the point of all of this? But the amazing thing is when you've lived that way, you just become so adaptable. Mm. And, and I know that there have been plenty of times in my afterlife from being a monk, where that adaptability was massively tested. Whether it was not having work, whether it was being rejected by companies, whether it was uh, not knowing what was next, it was that stretch in my adaptability that kept me adaptable. Whereas if you've never done something to stretch your adaptability, you always feel that you're only in this finite level of stretching.
0: Mm, 100%. And, and yeah. I feel like that's magnified right now. And you know, not to take away from anyone's experience with COVID and everything, but it is just, I notice even in myself, like I feel like I've had experiences in the past that have in a way prepared me for like being the calm and the chaos, at Mm -hmm. least in my own world, in my own inner world. Have you felt that during this time? And how do you transmute that to people? Because I Mm -hmm. I do think there's a, I, I think of you as a bridge, like between, you know, obviously having your past life as a monk and now just being this this thought leader, how do you translate in a way so that people feel seen and heard, but also like they kind of like wake the fuck up <laughs>
2: in a way? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think the first thing is that I think that COVID is an extreme test of all of this. Yeah. So no one needs to sit there and start judging themselves and going, I'm not adaptable and I don't know how to meditate and I'm not calm because this is like, it's like taking you from school and putting you in like the extreme test of adaptability. You know what I mean? Like yes. There's adaptability and then there's the whole world having to adapt at the same time. So first of all, I think when scenarios like this happen, they're not good ways to, it's not an opportunity to start judging yourself and guilting yourself and feeling bad that you haven't got it all together. And I genuinely mean that. Like, I'm not just saying that because I think it's the right thing to say. I I genuinely believe that you don't judge yourself in the biggest exam. And so it should just be the wake-up call that you need to work on some of these things. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. That's the bridge. It's like, don't judge yourself and don't guilt yourself, but take it as an opportunity to remind yourself That I need to be prepared because something else is going to happen in the future, whatever it may be, whether it's local or global, whether it's personal or collective, there will always be something that tests my resilience and adaptability. So why not use this as the wake-up call, as the loudest alarm in the world to say, I'm going to go and develop those skills now? I'm gonna get prepared when it's tough. Right? It's almost like when things are when things are bad, work hard. And when things are good, you work harder. But most of us, do it the other way around. Like most of us try and work hard when things are bad and when things get good, we kind of coast. And this is our time to set ourselves up for whatever challenges come in the future. So I think that's that bridge, if that makes sense of, of I think the starting point is not judging yourself, not guilting yourself, but getting activated and going, well, what is the skill that I'm being called to learn? What is the ability or the quality that I need to aspire for that I've kind of left on the back burner for a long time.
1: Yeah. A lot showed up for me this year, <laughs> um, I, and also too with the stretching, your adaptability. I love that. I think that's so powerful and poignant. And I think you know people would hear about you know you being a monk and and probably be like, oh, I would never do that. But it's so it can happen in such micro moments. Like even if we're taking the person going to work example, it's like going a different way to work, parking in a different spot. Like it doesn't need to be so radical for people. It actually can be very small and fun.
2: Oh, 1,000%. Like I am not in any, you don't have to live of like course. a monk to think like a monk at all. And I, this is not You're like, like book,
1: so, out, book out now. Yeah, this is, this is not like a
2: monk conversion
1: strategy. i like, you know, like everyone
2: become monks. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's the point of why monks do what they do that fascinates me. It's, it's not about what's happening specifically. So for example, we would take this walk around the ashram regularly. And every day we were asked to find a new item on that path. And so one time you walked by, it'd be like, find a new flower. And the next day it'd be like, find another flower. And then now your mind starts planning for the future. So you start planning for tomorrow's flower. And the next day you go and like, today, look for a stone. And you're like, oh God, like I I, I messed up. And and the point of it wasn't, you know, you may say, well, Jay, where do I do that? It's that you could do that in your home. You could do that on your way to work. You could do that in your partner, you can notice something new about them. Uh, You know, I wonder how many people are asked like, what's your partner's hair color or eye color and wouldn't know the exact, you know. And so there's so much newness that you can discover and we're always looking for stability and sameness. And the crazy thing is that everything's always changing. So looking for newness in the simple things in life or changing parts of your routine simply, you don't, I think... uh, You know, we don't realize how much the simple changes in a day can completely transform it until you start doing it. And so it could be, hey, you know what? Every day I'm going to wake up and I'm going to listen to this song when I wake up. Let me see how I feel. Okay, that song didn't work. Let me try another one. But right now I'm just waking up feeling down or sad every day, but I haven't really experimented with a different way of waking up. And so you're spot on. I don't think it's about doing anything radical or extreme, but it is about constantly opening yourself up. To really experience something. One of my favorite ones is going on a walk and finding an item that appeals to you or sticks out to you and to really explore it. And I did this with someone I was working with the other day. And the first thing he did was, was pick up this big rock. And then the next thing he did was pick up this, this kind of like-
1: Such a guy thing. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it like, was one of those I'm going to pick up the big rock. <laughs> yeah. And then the next
2: thing is picking up this sort of like flower or, you know, and, and when you just look at it and you like observe it and you explore it, it's not about you getting intimate with a random flower. Like that's not the point of it. The point of it is to train your mind to explore everything in your life more fully and wholly. And, and now you're going to apply that to your partner. You're going to apply that to your work. And so that, it's just shifting mindset. That's what's happening. It's not the actual act. Sometimes they do it with a raisin. Uh, a, oh, lot I of, love that. a lot of a lot of meditations. No two no raisins are I the love
1: same. That yeah. eat, I love that you eat raisins. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking
2: amazing. Sponsored by Sunmade <laughs> Raisins. Uh, if you've never, you know, if you've never done that before, it's like a lot of meditation training involves using a raisin and just smelling the raisin, holding it to your ear, playing around with your hands, and it's the weirdest thing in the world. And I've led that exercise a million times where people are, like, you are the the weirdest stranger <laughs> person <laughs> ever. But but the whole point of it is not to love raisins. The point of it is. How many things do we quickly judge in our lives? So when you're asked to pick something up off the floor, you may think it's a certain color. But then when you look at it, you're like, oh, actually I was wrong. You may think it was really hard and strong. And when you pick it up, it's really soft and weak. That's how people are in our lives. Sometimes you meet someone and you think they've got a really hard exterior, but you get to know them and they're the softest person. And so when you start to experience the simple things in life wholly, you start to experience everything in the same way.
0: When I've taken walks recently, the the flower example, I, I I was picking up flowers and I didn't know why. It was just kind of my way of like turning my brain off. But I noticed like the fact that we walk by flowers. Flowers are insane. And you like, if you look closely at of it is like, it is a, tri- it's a mind trip. Yes. It is a, quite literally without psychedelics, it is a trip. <laughs> yes. And it's so, it's so cool. So I love, I love that point because yeah, we, we just make these really quick assumptions and we, we, we find what we're looking for, mm-hmm. right? So I think that like very subtle shift just makes everything so much more exciting and interesting and opening.
1: I started um, taking pictures of flowers. I'm like, I'm officially old. <laughs> on my camera roll, there's like flowers. I'm like, I am a grandmother.
0: Because <laughs> I'm like, wow, We'll colors. be on a walk and she's like back yeah. there. I'm like, I love it.
2: That's awesome. I had no idea. Both of you are uh, flower, flower lovers. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, very much. Exactly. Very
0: much. On the other side of, you know, being unattached, I don't think it's the exact opposite spectrum, but in in the book you talk about routine versus novelty. And you were you referenced the conversation you had with Kobe Bryant about creativity and how his creativity and I'm sure yours as well thrive within structure and routine. So I'd love to talk about that because as someone who like I'm like I'm creative. I don't need structure. I know, you know, I want to like do my thing. I want to roll around on the floor. I want to (laughs) like skip in the field. I'd love to talk about that because I need it. And he that conversation and just the value of what that brings to someone's creative process.
2: Yeah, for sure. I, I think that conversation was affirming for me because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, if Kobe Bryant sees it that way too, that, that's pretty cool. Like, you know, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll accept it. And so, yeah, it was it was a conversation around that balance between creativity and structure and a lot of people feeling how you do. and And I can definitely identify with that where it's like, I just need a month off to just be creative and I need everything to stop. And there's truth in that and there's power in that and taking those reflective weekends mm. or breaks can be, be truly powerful. But at the same time, creating some discipline in your schedule and populating with creativity can sometimes find or force some incredible things with you. So an example of that is one of the things that I set up was I try to create all of my content within nine out of 21 days a month. And what I do is for nine days, I just go really deep into my creativity Mm. and I really explore it and I create from it. And then the next 21 days, I allow myself to have business meetings, come on podcasts, connect with people, work with my clients. And that almost blocked creation because I read a study that said your brain can't be logical and creative at the same time. So what we're often trying to do is almost like trying to drive from one side of LA to the other side midday in our minds. It's almost like you're running from the creative side of your brain to the logical side of your brain by going from business meeting, creative, brainstorm, numbers, data, business, (laughs) you know. And so we're like, we're like stretching our mind's ability. And so the only way to really find that balance is by going deep into the creativity in a structured way and then allowing yourself the time to do the more logical items. So that, that uh, using structure as a way of creating opportunity uh, for creativity can be huge.
0: And have you found like, have you ever gotten frustrated by like a block in creativity and like that structure has helped you to kind of push through it and then move through to that, you know, moment of genius?
2: Oh, absolutely. So I think my, my biggest creative block probably came around... You know what the funny thing is one of the biggest things that creates creative blocks is success. When you, when you do something and it works and then now you're scared of having to repeat it. Mm. So so the first time I felt it was when my first ever video went viral in 2016 and I had this moment when my first video got known and 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 it was a it was a huge life-changing moment for me. And then all of a sudden, I was like, I don't want to create anything. It's <laughs> like, yes. like, you know, like, what are you doing? Oh, no. like, you know, yeah, like, it's like, how did I do that? And like, you know, like I have no idea. Will it happen again? And, you know, you start judging yourself yes. and you start putting yourself in a box. And all of a sudden, you you realize you are completely out of the zone mm-hmm. that yes. got you in the zone. Totally. And so now I'm constantly looking at it from fear. Now that I saw that happening towards the end of, I think it was again at the end of 2017. And I, I really felt like I was, creating and I was creating consistently because that's what you had to do. And then all of a sudden I was like, okay, I'm not feeling like I'm creating the work. Not that I'm not proud of, I believe in every message I've ever put out, but I'm not, I'm not feeling creatively enthused about what we're creating. And I remember I I said to my team, I was like, we're not, and I do this every December now. So I say, we're going to create all the content in advance that we're going to roll out And then for December and January, we don't create any new content. We just have a creative brainstorm time. So we completely go into, we're still posting content that we've created beforehand, but we switch off and just allow that flexibility and breathability every single year. And I find that the only thing that helped me do that was consuming different content in different industries that inspired me. So I'll start watching more music videos or I'll start watching- uh, <laughs>
1: You come back to the team, you're like, this is what we're going to do. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, show, yeah. <laughs> you, start,
2: you start watching more movies or yeah. whatever Whatever it is for you. For me, it's movies and music videos that I feel creatively spark a lot for me. And so I'll, I'll get really deep into analyzing a movie or I'll get really deep into analyzing a music video or whatever it may be. And so I, I completely agree with you that whenever I've hit a creative block I've and, and I've really felt it, I've been like, okay, we we switch everything off and let's really go and discover again. And that's definitely when I've done my proudest work. But if I was to only do that and we didn't have the structure and the discipline, then I feel like you learn less and you wouldn't even have that moment of, what have
0: I learned all of this year? How do we use all of that, but then apply this new creative
2: genius to it?
0: Yeah, I think it's so valuable to have that space. You know, it's just, even if it feels comparatively like nothingness, but I do think there's, there are things happening that we might not be able to express or identify that kind of prepare us for that next wave of, of creativity.
2: Yeah. And I also feel like, you know, for me, it's my meditation in the morning. I feel like that stillness, you need stillness in your day. So there's a beautiful Buddhist statement that says, um, what movement does for the body, stillness does for the mind. So we all know we need to exercise and move our bodies to feel healthy and fit. And so when you need to move your body you need to still your mind. And so finding 10 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day, an hour a day, whatever it is for you like getting space and stillness will always feel like you're a sponge for creativity because you're allowing your body and your mind to be aligned and talk to you. And and I know that sounds strange but it's kind of like let's say both of you work as a team, you're you're a great partnership. But let's say Lindsay you're like running around and you're unreachable and you never turn up to meetings. And now, how are you going to feel?
1: Pissed. Yeah. <laughs> and,
2: and, and you're going to feel like, slow down so I can talk to you. Yeah. Your body and mind feel that every day. Like mm. they're just waiting for you to slow down. So true. So that they can and give sink. you an idea. So that they can get back in sync. So they can give you a signal.
1: I love that. And it's also like, you know, creating the clear channel to channel. Mm -hmm, You know, by having them in sync allows that, like the channeling. In that regard, related to like channeling or spirituality, what is your relationship with source? Or how do you describe your relationship with God or whatever? Like, how would you describe that?
2: I think that everyone on the planet has a unique and extremely personal relationship with the source, the divine, the highest, God, you know, whatever word everyone has for it. And for me personally... I feel like that relationship is a relationship of service. It's a relationship of communication. And I think there's a beautiful statement by David Lynch where he says that prayer is how you talk to God and meditation is how God talks to you. Oh, I
1: love mm. that. And
2: mm. and it's that it's in that that becomes like this two-way communication where you feel you're not See, if we all had to be the most compassionate ourselves, are oh, we give up any day. And that's why feeling finite and or not even realizing that we're finite is what limits us from mm-hmm. being unlimitedly merciful and compassionate and loving. And I know that if I walk into a coaching meeting just giving an example or even if I walk into this and I walk in and saying I'm going to give my best and and even if I give my best that'll be great, but if I allow the source to work through me, and simply say, like, I'm just going to be an instrument of the source's love and compassion and grace. Then guess what? This room can be flooded. Uh, it's almost like we, were, as monks, we had this beautiful ritual where we would take, we would scoop water out of like a holy river and put it back in. And we were reminded that that's what we, all we do as humans, that the source of the ocean is huge. And when you scoop out a little bit of water and you may drink it or you may give it to someone else that's you taking it from the source. So reminding ourselves always that the source is like full of flowing and full of abundance. And so for me, it's, I feel like I'm fallible. I make mistakes. I'm not perfect. My level of compassion will always be limited if I rely on myself. And, and the word that's used in the Vedas is if I purify myself. So the way I like to explain it is if I even if I have the best intention, if I'm not purified, I'm giving everyone muddy water. And so it's like, imagine you want to distribute water to every place in the world that doesn't have access to clean water, but you're giving everyone muddy water. All you're going to do is give people more diseases and ailments. But if I say, actually, I'm going to purify this water and then we're going to distribute it to everyone else. So for me, the connection with the highest is a connection of purifying and cleansing myself so that what comes through me is of genuine benefit to people and isn't me or about me or isn't my message. Uh, and and I've always felt that, that I just feel grateful that I get to share wisdom that I studied in these ancient literatures and try and make them relevant and accessible. But, but And I've realized them by living them in my life. So I've had personal experience with experimenting with them, but the wisdom is not mine. The the The, the ideas are not mine because mm-hmm. They're not ours. They've, they've existed far beyond us.
0: I'd love to talk about purpose. So many people mm-hmm. in our audience are the very common question. What is my purpose? How do I find my purpose? And I think it's a beautiful question. I, I love that we're at a time on earth where people are asking that question. It's really cool. So I'd love to talk about finding your purpose. And I know in the book, you relate that to dharma. And then I thought it was so interesting how you brought in <laughs> other people's dharma And just kind of how that sometimes kind of like muddies the water as you search for your own dharma. So I'd love to just dig in there.
2: Yeah, for sure. In the book, I talk a lot about method acting Mm -hmm. in the beginning and how we almost all of us become method actors at some point or another. And we start playing someone else's role really, really well. And we start thinking that that must then be our purpose. And so whether that role comes from parents or school or wherever it may be, we're now perfectly playing this other role. And I give the examples of like Daniel Day-Lewis and how when he was in the gangs of New York, he was wearing this, uh, this really old coat, maybe from the 18th century or something like that. And he almost got ill wearing this old coat. And then he talks about how he almost went mad playing that role. Uh, there was another example of how Jared Leto for Suicide Scots was sending dead rats in the mail to his co-stars to think like the Joker. And those are all obviously extreme examples of method acting.
1: <laughs> the co-workers are like, we got it, dude.
2: Yeah, yeah we get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we, we get it. Like,
1: yeah, yeah. They're like, you get another rat. coming come into like, the cast yeah. party like, yeah. Honestly. Yeah, you don't,
2: you don't need to go that far, yeah, right? Honestly. But it's and it's like, those are extreme examples. But yeah. if you think about the things in your life that you do and you go, well, why am I doing this? Because I'm playing a role. And so I think that's why your, your community is asking the question, what is my purpose? And I fully agree with you. I think it's a beautiful question. I'm so grateful that we asked this question and no one should feel discouraged from asking it because it's almost the beginning of all wisdom. Like it's the beginning of really searching for who you truly are. And so there are various models for purpose that I've come across in my studies. Uh, one of the more popular ones today is ikigai, which is the Japanese word for the reason for being. And so ikigai means reason for being. And dharma, which comes from the Bhagavad Gita, has some similarities and they have some parallels in how they're perceived. But the way I like to explain purpose, because it's a big fuzzy word and we hear it a lot. And so for me, I like to break it down with the use of dharma, which can mean eternal purpose as one of its definitions in the Bhagavad Gita. And this formula just explains it. Purpose is made up of this. Passion plus compassion, plus expertise, equals purpose. Now, when you think about it that way, you now start realizing it's not about figuring out your purpose, but just like an equation, it's about figuring out each of those elements and seeing how they fit. And so let's dive into each of those. I, I often encourage people to start with what they're passionate about. And people will be like, I don't even know what I'm passionate about. Like, that's a big word. And so the way I see it is like, purpose is like an adult, Passion is like a teenager, interest is like a child, and curiosity is the womb. So, if you don't know what you're passionate about yet, you simply have to start at curiosity and interest. So, the curiosity is the womb of your passion. And when curiosity gives birth, then it turns into an interest, which is like a child, and then it grows up into a passion, which is like a teenager, which is still trying to figure it all out. And then the purpose is our adulthood. And when you see it that way, you start realizing, oh, let me stop putting pressure on myself to have a passion. Let me just start at what I'm curious about. Let me just start at what fascinates me. Let me just start at what is my natural inclination. And that's what dharma is all about. Is like you naturally have things that you're drawn towards, but you were told that they were useless by someone or something and you traded them Mm -hmm. for things that were seen as useful. So how many of us have seen a job specification and gone, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. But I'm going to go in and say, I can do that. Or I'm going to learn how to do that simply to get this job. And now I'm 75% not myself. And I think I've been there. Same. I, you know, you, you know, corporate I, world. Yeah,
1: corporate world. <laughs> <'Cause> my life. <laughs> yeah. And,
2: and I think so many people, whether it's corporate world or whether it's family expectations, we end up in that scenario. And so the first thing is passion. Let's start with what, what am I passionate about? You may say, Jade, that didn't work for me. I tried that. I couldn't figure it out. Fine. You don't have to start there. You can start on another one. Let's start at compassion. Sometimes people find what their purpose is through pain as opposed to passion. It could be a personal pain you went through. So you had health issues and you had to have compassion on yourself to figure out your health issues. And now you discovered this whole new journey for yourself, right? So compassion can be for others or for yourself. There's a beautiful story in the book that I talk about. There's this uh, lady who uh, the way she explains it is, I became a Buddhist because I hated my husband. Uh, <laughs> and so she goes through an experience where she experiences, uh, her husband cheats on her and she's so broken by the fact that her husband cheated on her and started to realize that what she calls it, it felt like a malignant cell where her anger didn't depreciate after they left. Her anger increased and was just spreading all across her mind and body. And so then she turned towards a spiritual practice and meditation and, and found her home there. And, and she, she's her name's Pema Chodron. She's like a really oh, cool. uh, famous uh, Buddhist monk. And so uh, the, the reason why I love her example is because sometimes... You find your purpose through your pain mm-hmm. and through compassion for yourself or others. Or you may say, Jay, you know what? I'm really upset about the, the lack of uh, the injustice that's in the world. That's what I'm going to try and solve. Or I'm really upset that the environment's falling apart. That's what I'm going to try and solve. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's not even about I like this. It's about I don't like this. Yes. And therefore, I'm going to start there. And then you may say, well, Jay, that didn't work for me either. And so you've got the third entry point to purpose, which is expertise. You go, what skills do I already have? And how can I just start using them more purposefully? How can I just start using them to help someone or make a difference with a passion that someone else has? And maybe that will lead me to it. So when you finally, either one can be an entry point, but then you want to get to a point where you're using your passion in the service of others as a compassion, and then it becomes a purpose. So when you use your skills and gifts in the service of others, it elevates to a purpose. And so a lot of people are doing what they love. That's a passion. That's great. But you'll never be fully satisfied until you use it to make a difference in someone's life. Mm. And I hear this time and time again. This is why some of the biggest billionaires in the world pledge to give away their wealth over their lifetime. It's why so many people believe in helping charities and philanthropy, even after having everything, because it is simply service that pleases the heart. So we're all like educated for greed, but wired for generosity. Mm -hmm. And and we forget that.
1: Yeah, that is, that's a good one. That was a really good one. I want to talk about ego. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm going through like an ego death moment in my life right now. Um, but just, I think everyone knows what the ego is, but- I guess sometimes I struggle with some of the teachings are about, you know, ego death, having like no ego. And then some say healthy ego. So I guess what are your thoughts on healthy ego versus no ego? And what are some ways in which the ego shows up in people's lives where they may not notice it?
2: Yeah, great question. Really deep question, actually. In, in the Gita, it talks about the difference between the real ego and the false ego. So the false ego is what most of us have had experience of. And that is the feeling of, I'm the best, I'm incredible, the arrogance that comes with ego, everyone else is wrong, I'm right, Uh, only my way works, and it leads to the, well, why are they successful? Why are they the ones that are winning? Oh, they're not even doing it right, right? So that's where ego shows up in that way. But ego is also the opposite. So ego has this inside-out function where it's like, I'm the worst. I have to be the lowest of the lowest. I have to be the hardest treated person in the world. So ego shows up in I'm the best and it shows up in I'm the worst. And that's where the ego wants to be the most of everything it is. So even if it's the most worst, it has to be the most. It can't be like, uh, I remember one of the guests on my podcast was talking about how like, you know, oh, you've had pain? No, my pain is way worse. And that's ego too. You're competing now on how much pain you've had. And so the ego shows up in both arrogance and in low self-esteem, and it shows up in comparing, and complaining, and criticizing. And those are considered, in my monk teacher, the three cancers of the mind, which are complaining, comparing, and criticizing. So when we compare ourselves to others, it's our ego showing up and Mm -hmm. not appreciating them and trying to find superiority by comparing. When we criticize someone else, our ego is trying to make us feel better by making someone else feel worse. When we're complaining about what what we've been given, again, our ego is saying, this is not enough. So our ego shows up in a multitude of ways. And thinking that we're going to conquer or defeat our ego in one day, one week, or one year is the issue of trying to overcome our ego. Ego is something that is going to last for a long time. And the goal with ego is to steadily monitor it and let it gradually dissolve. It's not something that you have to shake off. It's not something you have to hate about yourself. It's it's almost like having a friend in your life, a toxic friend in your life, that's just got so close that you're now slowly trying to let it dissolve. And if you've ever tried to run away from a toxic friend, it doesn't work that way. You don't just shake them off or throw them away. You've got to naturally just let it be purified and dissolved. So. Ego comes with a desire to control, to hold, to make sure that everything that I do, everything that I say works. Only way that I've found, and I've found three methods that I use consistently to monitor and be aware of my ego, is the first one is I constantly want to be around people that are smarter, wiser, better in in many different ways. And what that does is that it stops the arrogant side because I realized that actually some of these people that are really successful are actually also some of the most humble people in, in certain areas of their life. And I've, I've seen that across the board that a lot of the successful people that I've met, they have a sense of humility in their life. I'm not saying they're completely humble, but they have humility to want to learn and to grow and to develop. And so that's what I'm saying that if you're surrounded by great minds, you'll always just be like, wow, I can learn so much from them. The the second thing I found is to be humbled by my goals. So I'm always expanding the goalposts, not because I don't want to celebrate where I am, but because I constantly want to challenge myself and see how far I can go. And so that keeps my ego in check. And and the third and final one that I've found is to create a, what I call like a council of trust in the people's opinions that I value. See, if you value everyone's opinions, your self-esteem will be destroyed. But if you only value one person's opinion, who's a yes person or your best friend, then you'll also be misled. And living in a world saying no one's opinion matters doesn't actually make sense. So what I feel is I've surrounded myself in each area of my life, whether it's spiritual, business, friendship, relationship, where I have a group of counsel, like a group of mentors whose opinions I value, who will tell me the truth, who can always make me aware of, of where my ego's at. So I was, I was asked recently to coach someone. I was working with them and they were talking to me about ego. And I was telling my teacher about this person, and and my teacher said to me, my teacher said to me, oh, it's so lucky that you're getting to coach them on your own issue. And, and I was like, whoa. Like, oh I was like, that was God. deep. Like, you know, but, I love like,
0: that. You know, and it was just,
2: a, that's the kind of person you want. And, and I trust my mentor enough to say that to me. Totally. So I didn't feel like, oh, he doesn't get that I'm such yes. a good person. It's like, I've, I've chosen him because I know that if he says it, I will take it. If mm. someone else said it to me, I might not take mm-hmm. it. And, and that's why you have to build a tribe, a community, a council of people in your life whose opinion does matter. Mm-hmm. And you have to select them carefully.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, because you, like, I don't want my mom in that group because my mom's going to tell me I'm amazing. <laughs> <So not laughs> like, yeah. My mom would never say that to me. My mom, like, celebrates everything in my life, right? And so you've got to, you've got to choose them. So I found those really help. Yes. And on the low self esteem part and the comparing and the complaining and criticizing, I genuinely believe this. When you find your passion and, Expertise and compassion, you start to value everyone else's passion, expertise, and compassion. The reason why ego beats us into low self esteem is because we don't know ourselves. So now we want to be everyone. So if I don't know myself, I want to be an athlete. I want to be a singer. I want to be an actor. Whereas when I start doing those things, I'm like, oh, I don't want to be any of those things. I want to be me. And so actually, the greatest antidote to ego is getting closer and closer to our real ego. Which is, who am I? What is my purpose? What is my passion, my compassion, and my expertise? And so there's a beautiful story in the Vedas that says, uh, so, so the teacher speaks to two people. One's egotistic and one's humble. And he asked the egotistic person and the humble person, he said, go around the world and find one person, right? Just try and find one person who's better than you. And the ego person goes outside and goes, I found no one who is better than me. And the humble person goes around and goes, I found everyone was better than me in some way. And and what that is is an appreciation that we all have different skills. And actually, if I know mine deeply, then I'm really excited to celebrate yours. And that's what we're missing in the world is that our egos constantly defeat us because we haven't uncovered our real ego and our real ego is our real purpose.
0: Mm Mm-hmm, yes. Ooh. Love a good ego. I I'm, love a good ego talk. Yes. Yeah, ego
2: is good couple. Well, because
0: I feel like it's constantly in every season of our life. It's yes. kind of dying in a new way. Yeah, and dying and being reborn. Totally. Mm. You know, it's
1: like it it's, it dies and then we grow and then it it's it's just yeah. a balance. Yes, 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 yes,
0: yes. Say say the last part again. The ego is our purpose. Yeah, I was saying that the
2: real way of the real ego is our purpose. The real ego. The is our false purpose. Yes. ego yes. is yes. what we're living in right now. And so when you find your real ego, which is your purpose, the false ego naturally dissolves. Yes. So you don't have to like, I, I always try and, mm-hmm. a good example is like, when, when I used to walk around in India, the things that would scare me the most is I would often come across shedded snake skin and think it was a snake. And, and I've seen a lot of shedded snake skin. But the interesting thing about snake skin is that when a snake is growing a new layer of skin, it doesn't just like fight off it, The old one's not just Ripped off in a moment It grows the new And it sheds the old And so our ego Has to be shedded Like naturally And gracefully And, and it doesn't have to be Something that we fight Every day Because if you're right. fighting it You're going to get exhausted mm-hmm. Like the ego Will just find another Crack mm-hmm. in you To find another way mm-hmm. And so Trying to fight it You'll just get exhausted But trying to just Find your purpose It will just naturally Start to dissolve
1: It's trying to fight Thank anything you. Yeah You know what I mean? It's like the two energies. It's like the fighting is where you lose the energy and then like acceptance and is where you maintain the energy. That's
2: beautiful. I love that. Yeah, yeah, fighting's exhausting. Yeah,
1: the whole, there's a lot going on collectively too where there's like fighting that's exhausting rather than other. But I want to talk about relationship a little Mm -hmm. bit before we wrap up. You mentioned something earlier when we were talking before we got on where you were talking about your lovely wife and you were saying she's so fun and she's just like, so like joyful and you were like I can be a little moody can you talk about yeah, that? Yeah yeah for sure yeah so
2: compared to my wife I can be one of the moodiest people around really? <laughs> like, and, and, and uh, she's she's been like that since I met her and it's almost just she's become more like that
0: How long have uh, you been
2: So we've together? been together for seven years mm-hmm. and we've been married for four so I feel like I've and, and I've known her or known of her for 11 years mm-hmm. so we, we've been involved in each other's lives for a fair bit of time and she's always been like that, but she's become more like that. And so she's the kind of person that will find any excuse and it's not, she doesn't need good news to be joyful. And, and that's what I think is so powerful that if we're reliant on good news or bad news to be joyful yeah. or sad, you're constantly waiting for the next news, uh, whether it's personal or what's happening in the world. Whereas with her, she will find any excuse to just like break into a dance or smile and laugh or say something silly or, and, and it's just who she is. And, and I love that I get to experience her every day and she really allows me to be my full self. So I knew the reason I married her is because I got to be my full self around her. And I think she really inspires me to be my childlike self. And I really love not being childish, but childlike. I think there's so much value in it, not taking yourself too seriously, especially with your partner or your close friends And just allowing each other to grow and make mistakes and be silly. And so with her, I just, I feel like I can be my silliest uh, and most playful self. And that's why when you were referring to the videos we've been trying to create, we actually have so much fun because me and her do zero prep for those videos. (laughs) So what happens is my team will come up with me with an idea and I'll be like, all right, go away and set it up. And then on the day we just turn up. And so we don't yeah. know what the challenge is or what the script is or what's genuinely happening. So recently we built a piece of furniture together and we genuinely built the piece of furniture together.
1: <laughs> and it was just hilarious. It was like we- one of your staff's furniture. <laughs> They're like, let's, let's kill two birds with one stone. <laughs> yeah.
2: and, it was just, and it was just, well, it's now sitting in our garage as our garage piece <laughs> yeah. of furniture. But, but it's just, you know, that's been such a fun thing to do because it's, because we're not getting to, having to plan for it. And- that's because of who she is. Like she just has that buzz and natural energy where she'll just light up in in a very, not in a powerful and dominant way, but in like a really sweet and uh, mm-hmm. effortless way. It's divine feminine, baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. for sure. For sure. And she's, you know, she she says she owes it to her parents who are just two wonderful people who've, mm. who've raised her really well and, you know, her family. But But I also think it's just, I think she's kind of been born with it. Like I always say, like my wife's like, and and I I write this, that she's more monk than I'll ever be uh, because she's had it forever. And I'm like the person who had troubles that had to heal them and sort them out. And she's kind of just always been angelic. And it's beautiful to see that. But I can't understand how someone gets through life like that. I'm on the other end, going, "Wait, how did you like never do this or like never get involved yes. in this?" And, but she just decided, and it's not that she's been restricted; she just has no taste for it. Like she doesn't have any, you know. So yeah, I, I, I feel I I traded up massively, uh, and and uh, I feel so grateful to have her in my life because she she reminds me of joy every single day, and it's it's yeah i'm spoiled having it but but yeah
1: yeah it's like a drug
2: it is it really is like i can't tell you how fun it is to to see someone burst into a dance every time you walk into a room not for me by the way like it's not like a seductive kind of like it's not it's not that it's just like the stupidest dance in the world but it's there's something joyful about that playfulness and i think i i really like seeing how we can build this balance in our lives of being playful and profound Mm. And I think that that's what we're all missing in our life is like the depth, but then the playfulness of just letting go and exploring ourselves. And, you know, I I think that playful and profound is
0: is where I'm constantly trying to head. Love that. Yeah, I was going to ask about your relationship container, like as far as communication goes. Mm -hmm. I'm sure, I mean, you have so much going on. And so to be able to be present and communicate and really hear her needs. Her, hear your needs? Like, what does that look like? Do you have anything that you do that you're like, this works every time? <laughs> yeah,
2: no, that's great. So, I'm one of these people that needs to con. So, I know, you know, Gary Chapman wrote a brilliant book called The Love Languages, which I'm sure you've talked about before. And what <laughs> I'm really interested in, because I was reading a study by the Gottman Institute. So, John and Julie Gottman, who are married, have an incredible research institute. Uh, They're both wonderful people and they research relationships. And one of the studies that they found was that the number one skill that kept relationships together was not, it wasn't date nights. It wasn't grand gestures. It wasn't just communication. It was specifically learning how to fight. And that Mm. the number one skill that actually was the skill that kept relationships together was did the couple know how to deal with conflict? And what I love about that, when I read that, I was just like, that makes so much sense mm-hmm. because we've always been taught to be the couple that doesn't fight. Like it's almost like seen as an achievement to say, oh, we never fight. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's just not true because whether what you fight about is serious or not serious, like even my friends would be like, Jay, you and Radhi never fight. And I'm like, that's not true. We may not fight about big stuff. We don't have any, like, thankfully, you know, we don't have any big issues, but we have issues. We fight about stuff. We disagree on a ton of stuff. We're actually very different people. I'm like this go-getter, super ambitious, rebellious person. And she's like grounded, wants to be in one place, really simple life. You know, if she had it her way, we'd be living one mile radius away from her parents' home, which is what she wanted. We now live thousands of miles Mm -hmm. away in LA compared to London. And so we're very different people. And the number one thing that's worked is whenever there's been an issue, I've... I think I've I've been the one who's pushed it, but I've always been like, let's figure out what we want this to look like. like. What do we want this to look like? And if we don't both want it to look like the same thing, then we need to figure out what it will look like if it's different. And so for me, it's always like sitting down and going, not how to solve this issue, not how to solve this relationship. What do we want this relationship to feel like and look like? And are we both committed to getting there? So for me, I told her, I was like, I never want to wake up next to someone that I don't feel excited to wake up next to. So if we're not creating that relationship, I, I can't be in it. Like it's not going to last long for me. Do you have the same vision? And if she does, then that's going to come with certain things that we're both going to have to do to get there. So for me, it's visioning what you want and realizing what that takes rather than getting so lost in the current issue and the current problem that that kind of can be insignificant most of the time. And, and so I think creating a vision of what you want it to look like and being really specific. So one of my favorite ones is um, I really believe that the biggest miscommunication in relationships that we've had and something that's worked for us is defining words and language. So one of the biggest challenges in a relationship is someone says to their partner, I want more of your time. I want more of your time. Now, time is a huge word. Today, we've spent time together but we've also given each other what's more important, which is our presence and our energy. Now, I could have given you my time and I could be on my phone right now (laughs) and you could be on your laptops right now doing work. And guess what? We've all spent time together. And there's a reason why couples go away on a whole weekend and one of them is thinking, oh, we spent so much time together. And the other one's going, I want more of your time because they didn't get any energy or presence. So to me, it's like when Raleigh's asking for something, I'm like, what does that mean? And what does that practically look like?
1: like so, what is that? so male.
2: actually It's Justin too. What are you
1: saying? Yeah, like, <laughs> what are you actually saying?
2: And, and Radhi, <laughs> thankfully, has been able to explain what she expects. And I, and it sounds like the most basic thing, but we don't push each other to be really expressive. So for me, when we were trying to figure out our dates in the beginning, I was like, what are we actually like doing together? Because every time we went to a dinner and a movie, it just didn't feel right. And then when we'd go shopping, like because we both enjoy fashion and clothes, I realized that I didn't love going shopping with her because I wanted to shop too. And and maybe I'm one of the rare guys who, who really enjoys shopping, but I do. And, and then, so I'd be like, oh, I'm just spending my day in a waiting room in a store that I don't want to be in. And so we stopped, and then we figured out that we loved, we loved doing activities together. So we love going biking together. Or we love being outdoors together. or We love being, you know, doing something physical together. And so that came through just, the process of elimination and communicating and there's a great study by Harvard which you can google it's called the I call it emotional vocabulary i think Harvard call it their emotional table and what it does is it shows like when people ask us like how are you doing most of us define our life with five words good bad okay fine hmm right so it's like how's your day been good how's your week been bad how are you doing fine and so our emotional vocabulary with our partners and everyone is so limited and so the harvard table shows you the synonyms and the breakdown of every core emotion so instead of saying i'm feeling sad today are you offended are you irritated are you upset are you confused are you anxious like there are so many other words to describe the word sad and with our partners we that's the place where we really need to experiment with this where it's like let me really articulate because the problem is you're saying sad because you don't even know what you're feeling. And so getting really connected to our emotional state is, is the only way I think you can have really clear uh, ways of dealing with conflict in a relationship and having a really clear vision of what you're both expecting. And that vision, if it doesn't align, you have to ask yourself if you're both okay with that. And if you are, great. But if you're not, you've got to accept that that's still what it's going to look like. Mm.
0: Yeah. That is so true. I think I think sometimes when in a relationship conflict comes up because we put so much on the other to mm-hmm. tell us how we're feeling, make us feel better. Yeah, just so much on the other person. And I've realized in my relationship now, I know it's healthy because it's making me, it's like kind of putting it back on me, which is good. Mm-hmm. You know, like understanding that there's so much that I've always put on other people to define for me. Yeah. And now it's time to define it for myself.
2: Totally. And, and yeah. that's the thing. You're, you're spot on that if you define it for yourself, someone else is going to understand you better. Yeah. And when they understand yes. you better, they may actually give it. And, and that's oh. the point that if you can't articulate what you're going through to yourself, then there is no chance <laughs> your best sure. friend, your husband, wife, partner, whatever it is going to understand you.
1: Totally. And mm-hmm. then on RTT, you said it's us versus the problem. Yeah, so that's… Which is so. Yeah, that,
2: that, that insight is, you know, something that I, I realized with Radhi was like, I just always used to say to her, it's like, it, it, we have to stop thinking that we are fighting.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: that together, we're solving this thing. And you're a team. That's mm-hmm. the point of that statement that you together are a team. But when you are fighting, you think you're an opposite team. Yes. And when you're on opposite teams, that means if I win, you lose. And if you lose, I win. So when you're on opposite teams and you don't see yourself as a team, then that means one of you has to win and lose. And so if, you're, if I'm right, you're wrong. And if you're wrong, I'm right. And so that's what thinking you're against each other creates. Whereas when you go, no, actually, we, we want to work. And that's what I'm saying, having a collective vision and saying, this is the vision we want. This is the relationship we want, which means we're a team. So what is that now going to take? Now we both need to be right. Now we both need to win. And, and that's what it is. Like, why not win together? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, why not win? Like, why do you want to win and make your partner lose? That's not a healthy way yeah. to build a relationship. If I want my wife to lose, we're both losing.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know,
2: if and if she wants me to lose, then we're both losing. Mm-hmm. So you have to want to win together. Yeah. And that's where you use your competitive ambitious spirit and engage it in that way. You don't have to give it up in a relationship.
0: Yes. Yeah. It, it's an it's really empowering to like step in and just say, we got this together. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: Completely. This is so
1: good. Ooh. Okay, before we go, I want to talk feeling about good. the book. Yes. How are you feeling?
2: I'm... You know what? I'll be honest with you both because I've loved this, and you both yeah. are amazing interviews, oh. and you're oh. so fun to be with.
1: Oh. Yeah, and I,
2: you. I have loved lock this lock the com-
1: door, Tommy. Never I have, I have <laughs> I've never loved leaving. this conversation
2: because I, we've, I mean, I've said stuff I've never said before, oh. and 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 I've like kind of had to really discover stuff yeah. through it, which I love. Mm. I, I really, I I prefer being able to find new ideas when i'm sitting in this way so i i come very like blank canvas so you guys have been amazing so thank you so much but i'm feeling excited and nervous at the same time with the book i always am when i'm doing something for the first time and since my first book so i'm super nervous and excited and i love that feeling Mm -hmm. because it's the feeling that makes me really always feel humble and grounded and so i love challenging myself and a few years ago I started to realize a pattern in my life, which I turned into uh, a concept that I like to live by. Is that every year, you should be learning something. So every single year, you should learn something. Every single year, you should be loving doing something.
0: Mm.
2: And every year, you should be launching something. And these are the reasons. The reason why you have to learn something every year is because it keeps you growing and keeps you excited and it keeps you motivated. If you're learning something, you'll never run out of motivation and inspiration because you'll be like, I'm so excited, I'm learning this new thing every day. Um, The second thing is you should be loving something. What loving something does is it brings confidence. When you love doing something, like if you love doing this podcast, you feel confident, you feel certain, you feel self-assured, you feel that real purpose ego of like, I know what I'm doing, I got this. So you've developed confidence. And then the reason why you need to launch something every year is to feel humbled, excited, and nervous, and feel that fresh feeling again. And so imagine every year you felt excited about the future because you're learning. You felt happy about the present because you love something. And you felt nervous Mm. and humbled by something you're doing for the first time. And that's such a beautiful way to live. And I realized I was doing that kind of without knowing, unconsciously. Mm And then I was thinking about what I've done over the past few years. And I was like, this is what's worked for me. And so now I'm always asking myself at the start of the year, what am I learning this year? Just one thing. What am I launching this year? Just one thing. And what am I loving this year? So for this year, for me, I'm launching my book. That's what I'm launching. What I'm loving is uh, my podcast mm-hmm. because I launched it last year. And that's what happened. You launched something last year and now it becomes the thing you love. Yes. right. And you like learned that the year before. So you learn something one year, the next year you love doing, uh, you launch it and then you start loving doing it. So this year I'm loving the podcast, I'm launching the book and I'm learning, uh, I'm experimenting and learning about comedy. So I've been making mm. these, uh, and, and wisdom obviously, I've been making these short videos on YouTube and Instagram which are placing me inside popular movies where I get to play with being a coach and a coaching character in well-known movies so we took out the first two one was with spider-man so it's a tom holland episode uh and the next one was with emma stone in la la land and the idea came from uh in january this year i was asked to almost play a cameo of myself and a life coach in the bad boys trailer with will smith and mine Lawrence. and so when i did that and i was like oh this is really fun to play with comedy and and wisdom and I loved, and obviously I was playing with two of the greatest comedians of all time. So I didn't really do anything. (laughs) I just, just let them do their thing. But I was like, Oh, I really like this. And so anyway, the, the videos have been a lot of fun. So that's what I'm learning this year is, uh, comedic writing and understanding it more and just experimenting with it. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of fun growth there.
0: I love that. I'm obsessed. with that. That's so oh, cool. Wow. Love. So many me merch opportunities. This is so <laughs> <good>. <laughs> you
1: know what I up Writing down. I'm like learning, loving launch. I okay. have zero
0: merch. There we go. I have zero.
1: Merch. I've got all the merch ideas written down for you. Thank you so, so much. Thank stretch you. your
0: adaptability. Yeah, I have
2: zero merch. So thank you so much.
0: We can make mugs. I'll get ten percent. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. The book. The episode is out, and the book is. Out so congratulations! It's by nice. my bed. Your little smiling face. I know <laughs> it's, it's, right? by it's actually my really interesting. Like I, I had this. I was like, oh, Jay's written a book before. Like I you know too. what I mean. It's to like name. it's almost like I'm in the future. It's totally because I know you're gonna write like a lot of books. Totally. Yeah. So anyway, uh, thank <laughs> you. Future's fun. Everyone, if
1: you're wondering, I know you're, you're, you're gonna have, like a 30 day transformation guide next. <laughs> that's like next it's like 30 days
2: to monkness or something no, <laughs> maybe I don't know but uh, no I, I want to thank you both because this has been mm. a lot of fun oh
1: god can't wait to uh, meet the wife yeah mm-hmm. definitely
2: yeah you you love her she's she's uh, better than me in every way so you, you you guys will get along really really well but I want to thank you for both uh, asking such deep questions and, and I don't I don't think you asked me a question that I've actually ever been asked before and oh. that's a real skill like that's so hard to do mm. so I want to thank you both thank for you. like amount of work and prep and effort that goes into this because, I mean, it's really tough and you guys made it really easy. So thank you so oh, much for this. Honestly, thank you for doing what you guys are doing. Aww. It's really special. Glad the we book. got
1: that on video and audio. <laughs> 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 to, to, I mean, I
2: mean it. I really mean it. Oh, it's, you literally kind. asked me. Like, I felt like the questions are so much deeper mm-hmm. and there's something really special about that. I, I'm excited to get to know you both. Uh, yeah, thank, thank, you. thank you. But honestly, thank you so much. Aww.
0: Grab the book. It's incredible. And we'll we'll see you guys soon. We'll see you guys thank soon.
1: You. Bye. Thanks. Thanks guys. Thank you so much, Jay, a new friend. Again, Think Like a Monk is available now. And if you'd like to watch this on video, you can go to YouTube. You can also check our Instagram, Almost 30 Podcast. We have some clips there and tons more goodies, but we are so grateful. That you joined truly, us.
0: Truly. Thank you all for listening. And again, share this with someone who could use Jay's wisdom. And we will see you next time. Episodes out every Tuesday and Thursday. Yeah. I'm Krista Williams. My Instagram is at it's Krista. And I'm Lindsay. And my Instagram is at Lindsay Simsick. This well, is almost 30, and we'll see you soon. Bye.